tonight is the first Sunday night of the month, and so this is normally when we have questions and answers. Sometimes the questions I get are the ones I think, boy, that's a great question. I'm looking forward to preaching a lesson on that one. And then there's sometimes it's like, wow, that's going to be tough. Well, let me point out, some questions puzzle us because we don't know what they mean. Sometimes people ask you a question and you may scratch your head and say, what are they talking about? In fact, David faced such in Psalm 35, verse 11. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. I think about that occasionally. Sometimes people ask me things I do not know. And the solution to that is to go and to look them up. But I will tell you that when we are asked questions, particularly that relate to things of who we are and what we are and what we believe, we ought to be ready to answer those type questions. Peter says, but sanctify in your hearts the Lord God, always ready to give an answer, defense to everyone who asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. Someone asks you, what do you believe? Someone asks you, why do you have your faith in Christ? Be willing to offer an answer. Well, tonight's questions relate to the reliability of the Bible. There are going to be two questions that relate to it, and I will try to do my best to make it as interesting as possible, recognizing I know some of you are very, uh, have very heavy eyelids, so um, I'm going to do the best that I can. Here's question number one. I have a friend who said he does not believe the Bible. He spoke of the synoptic problem. What is it? Should a Christian be concerned? Well, let me begin, first of all, by explaining a word. You probably or may not have heard that word. Some of you probably have. The term synoptic comes from two parts. The word sin means together. The word optic obviously means to see, so it means to see something together. It relates primarily to the gospel accounts. Here's what the pocket dictionary of the biblical studies says. The problem of how to account for the similarities and differences that exist among the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are alleged discrepancies and contradictions. Let me for just a moment stop and explain what this person's question evidently says. They're talking to their friends and they like to use big words and so they say, well, you know the synoptic problem is the reason why I don't believe in the Bible. Oh, really? Well, then what is a synoptic problem? Well, that's where there's two different accounts or... One says one thing and another says another thing. And so you come up with a problem. How do you explain the close similarities, the agreement in wording, things that are in the same order, the agreement in order, and then how do you explain the differences that exist between the three accounts? And some of them will say, well, you have to understand there's different sources. Well, here's where we're going to do a little bit of Bible study to see. It's obvious that the three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow a very similar pattern. I would say John also follows another pattern, but is a little bit different. 
Many of you may have in the back of your Bibles what is called a harmony of the Gospels. I have a Bible that I've used for many years called the Open Bible. And in the back of it, there is a page or several pages that has the harmony of the Gospels. And you'll have a date, an event, the location, and then you'll have where it's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, and then some related references. And if you will notice, if you're just looking at that on the screen, you will see that sometimes there will be an event that all of the writers will cover, and there may be an event that only one or two covers. But there's a big difference between something being contradictory and complementary. For instance, the passage that was read about two or three witnesses. Let's say, for instance, all of a sudden you hear a large crash sound outside. And you walk out and there's three men and they're observing. They said there has been an accident here. And someone says, here's what I saw. I saw a red car go by and then I heard the crash. Another person said, I saw a white truck coming and I heard a loud crash. Another person said, I saw a young person driving a bright colored car. Now there's all three different witnesses, but they're not contradictory. They're complementary. You learn one thing from one witness, another thing from another witness, and even a third thing from the third witness. When you and I study the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're not reading contradictory information, but complementary information. So let's take some examples. One of the things that is often said is, how many people did Jesus feed? Did he feed 5,000 or did he feed 4,000? You know, um, people can't keep their numbers straight. Well... Let me point out to you that not only did he feed 5,000 at one time, men, and then 4,000 another time, Matthew even records both events together. Notice Matthew 16, 9 and 10. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, which is 12, by the way, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up, You see, Matthew includes both events together in one passage. So there's not a contradiction. There's two events. The second, the question comes up when Jesus cleansed the temple. You know, he went into the temple area and there are people there selling doves. They're selling, uh, they're changing money. And they have their wares there right in the temple area. And Jesus comes and he turns their tables over. He makes a cord of whips and he drives them out. And he says, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. When did it happen? At the beginning of the Lord's personal ministry or at the end of his personal ministry? The answer is both. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, it's right there at the beginning of his personal ministry. Matthew chapter 21, it's right there near the end. But someone says, but you've got to understand that even Luke and Matthew don't agree because Matthew talks about the parable of the talents and Luke talks about the parable of the minas. Well, for just a moment, look and see what you find there. Matthew 25 
for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to the one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on his journey. Oh, I, I can understand that. Talents being amount of money. Every one of his servants had different abilities, and so to the smarter, the more talented one, he gave more money. To the one who had the least, he gave the least amount. When I go to Luke's account, therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. There's a different purpose here. So he called ten of his servants and delivered them ten minas and said, do business till I come. Oh, that's a totally different situation. Now this one has ten servants, not three. He takes ten minas, evidently the same amount for each one of them, and tells them to do business when I come. There's not a contradiction. There's two separate events. The reordering of events in the record does not change them either. Do you remember Matthew chapter 4? When Jesus hungered, he had been in the wilderness. And the serpent came to him, or Satan came to him, and he says, Command these stones to become bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then he carries him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, Cast yourself off, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. And you remember what Jesus said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Then he carries him to an exceedingly high mountain, shows him all the kings of the earth, and says, If you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of these. That's Matthew's record. In Luke's record, the last two, the pinnacle of the temple and the falling down and worshiping Satan, are reversed. doesn't change the message. It simply records the events. So supplemental information is not contradictory. Let me give you some other places where ideas have been raised. In the Bible, when Jesus healed the man at Jericho, was there one blind man or were there two? If you read Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, And behold, two men, blind men, sitting by the road when they heard Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Matthew tells us there was two there. Mark's account says, Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Does that mean there was not another one? No, Mark just focuses on Bartimaeus. He not only knows who this is, he knows who his father is. And so the emphasis is on Bartimaeus. Matthew just concentrated on the fact that there were two blind men. Luke's account, Luke 18.35, Now as it happened as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. What's the answer? There were two men there. Evidently both of them were blind and both of them were begging. But there was one of them by the name of Bartimaeus that was the one drawing his attention. And evidently Luke's account follows that of Mark just saying, here they are, there was just one man that they're paying attention to. 
in that same context. What about the text where it says they were leaving Jericho and they were entering Jericho? You see, I've talked to critics of the Bible saying that here the gospel writers couldn't even get it correct whether he was going in the city or out of the city. Well, let's look and see. Matthew 20, verse 29. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Mark 10, 46. Now, they came to Jericho, and he went out of Jericho. Well, think about that just a minute. He came to Jericho and went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude. And there's Bartimaeus. Luke 18, 35. Now, as it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, Somebody says, well, if I look at Matthew's account, he was going out. If I look at Luke's account, he was coming near. And I'm confused at Mark's. Mark says he was coming and he was going out. Oh, there's a real good explanation. I really didn't appreciate it until I went to the Bible lands. There's Old Testament Jericho that's to the north. There's New Testament Jericho that's to the south where Herod had his palace built. As Jesus is coming down from Galilee, he is entering into Old Testament Jericho. He passes through Old Testament Jericho, which would just have been a small, small area. And as he is leaving now Old Testament Jericho and going into New Testament Jericho, there's where he sees blind Bartimaeus. No contradiction. Just helps if you know a little bit of geography about the place. But now, many of these people want to account for the differences by means of sources. Now, for just a moment, this is where it's important to understand. Inspiration says, Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let me pause a minute and tell you the word inspiration is from a word which literally means God breathed. What we're saying is every passage in the Bible is God breathed. Modernists, infidels, say that the way it happened was is you had this source up here called Q and uh, they were oral sources and written sources and that what you have is they were simply editors and here's a picture that I pulled off of one of their websites. They have this thing abbreviated called Q which is for the German Kell meaning source. And they would say what you have is Mark and and Q up here and Luke and Matthew copied off of them and then they copied across one another with the idea that it's not God breathing the scriptures, God providing the message. You say, well, people don't believe that. There's a preacher who preached near here not long ago. In fact, preached once on our summer series. He wrote an article this month in Wineskins. I can't produce it all for you. You wouldn't want me to read it all, but I do want to read you some of what he said. And the reason is so you can see why this question is alive. Freedom in Christ, unfortunately many of us have experienced 
a restricted version of Paul's idea that goes something like this. There's freedom in Christ as long as you believe the same things I do. He's mocking the idea of the Lord's church that we can't just believe anything we want to. He said, one issue where I've experienced the lack of freedom is the issue of the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible does not clearly define inspiration or how it is inspired. So we as humans are left to theorize what it means to be inspired or how inspiration works. I'm going to pause there and tell you, I deny that. He said, for years I wrestled with the whole idea of inspiration and have struggled with the concept and term inerrancy particularly because I do not believe in dictation theory of the inspiration of the Bible. By inerrancy, I mean the common idea in conservative churches that the Bible is completely free from any and all errors. I firmly believe the Bible bears witness to the Word of God, and I believe the Bible is inspired, but I do not think the Bible supports dictation theory, and I do not like the term inerrancy. He said, it seems very apparent to me that Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source. We're even left asking, what did Jesus actually say? Versus what was attributed to Jesus because so many of his words are shaped by the authors. The assumption is that God must somehow have dictated scripture Or every word in Scripture is somehow directly from God since the Bible is His Word. I agree God is true, but God Himself did not personally write the Bible. Humans did. I know of no perfect or infallible human being, and yet proponents of inerrancy demand that the Bible which was written, collected, edited by humans be perfect and free from errors. He goes on to say, God did not write down those but allowed humans to contemplate, arrange, reflect, interpret, and compile. Everything we have in the Bible is a second-hand recording of the original Word of God moment. So the Bible is really a record of the Word of God and I believe a faithful record. I don't know if y'all gather what he's saying is, but he doesn't believe in inerrancy. He doesn't believe the Bible is free from errors. Now, if the Bible in general, and the gospel accounts in particular, are they a book given by God, or are they simply a book about God? That's a significant difference. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37 says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet, Or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are my opinions. No, that's not what he said. He said they're the commandments of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 does tell us what inspiration involves. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by will of man. Listen to that. Prophecy never came by will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Paul wrote down what he was writing, the Holy Spirit was guiding him so that what Paul wrote was what God wanted. If it is not by God, then it's not inerrant and it's not dependable. 
So to answer the question, what is a synoptic problem? It's the ability to try to look and see if there are similarities and differences. How do you account for those? I've already pointed out to you. It's complementary information, not contradictory information. And that the source of God's message is from God himself through the Holy Spirit. Now question number two. Which is a good translation of the Bible? I get that question probably about once every two or three months. Someone will come and say, Tony, uh, I'm going to buy a Bible for my grandchild. I'm going to buy a Bible for my child, for my mother, my father. What translation would you recommend? You could spend a lot of time trying to go into detail about this, but there are basically two ideas for choosing a translation. Does it accurately convey what the original text says? That's important. Number two, can you understand it? You know, you may have a Bible that accurately conveys what it says, but you may not understand what it says. There are three basic philosophies that the translators have. And when they approach and they start translating, this is the three ways they're going to approach it. One is going to be called formal equivalence. Am I going to try to follow the words so that if the word says go, I translate it go. If the word says stay, I translate it stay. The second is a functional equivalent, which says I'll take the thought that's there and I'll just try to put it in my own words. So a thought for thought translation. And then finally is a paraphrase, which doesn't even claim to be a translation. Those of us who believe in a high level of divine inspiration, that is where the Holy Spirit chose the words that the men used, we're going to gravitate toward a more word-for-word translation because you have to respect what the Holy Spirit says. Now, all translations struggle to some degree with how to deal with idioms. And I could give you a number of them, but I'll just use one. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, Wherefore, gird up your loins. That really doesn't resonate with most of us because we're not wearing a long flowing dress and we don't have a belt and we don't reach in between our legs and pull that up and tuck it in. But that means get ready to go. Well, how do you translate that? I'll tell you my preference is translate it literally and then put a footnote that says this means get ready. Sometimes there's great emphasis on that. Several years ago, there was a group of people put out this chart, a word for word on the left-hand side, thought for thought in the middle, and paraphrase on the right. I don't know that I necessarily agree where they place these. I do know the New American Standard, the King James, and the New King James are more word for word. I would move the ESV quite a bit to the right in the sense of more toward a thought for thought. But the NIV and others like that are much more free in their translation. Let me just give you one example because I'm running out of time. If you use 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, the New King James says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. If you put the King James right next to it, you'll notice there's only two differences in the words, the word for plead and the word beseech. 
And then when you get down for that, ye versus you. That's the only differences between the two verses. On the other hand, if you take the English Standard Version, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's a big difference now between you all speak the same thing and you all agree. The NIV of 2011 says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. And there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in his mind and thought. Notice, they do a little bit better job by saying that you agree with one another in what you say. But there's the emphasis on, does the original word say agree, or does the original word say speak? So I'm going to put an interlinear on the screen. King James crosses top. Under that's a Strong's numbering system, so you could look it up for yourself if you wanted to. And then you see the parts of speech, but as you see the lexicon, the de dictionary definition, the word there, lego, means to speak or to say something. It doesn't mean to agree. What he's saying is, I want everybody in the church to say, speak, preach, teach the same thing. But you see, that doesn't go along with denominational doctrine that says, well, we just all agree to disagree. Now, while none are perfect, some are much better than others. I generally recommend the New King James, the King James American Standard, and sometimes the New American Standard. I do not recommend the NIV, the NIV 11, the RSV, the ESV, the Message, or the Good News for Modern Man, or the Cotton Patch, or you can go on way down the list. Get a Bible that you can trust. Get a Bible that when you open it, you can feel confident that the translators respected the Word of God. How you and I approach the Bible is important because you and I are going to answer to its message he said, the same word I have spoken, the same shall judge you in the last day. It is this book that tells us how to be saved. James 1 verse 21, he says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If I can't depend upon the Bible to be accurate and true and inerrant, then how can I trust it to save my soul? But I do believe in the Bible, and I believe it is God's Word. As we observed in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, he said, And from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Tonight, why not believe God's Word? Why not be obedient to His will? Why not be baptized for the remission of your sins? We're going to sing an invitation song. We're going to sing, oh, why not tonight? If you need to respond, come down front. We'll assist you in obeying the gospel. If you're a child of God and prayers are needed, come, we'll pray with you. As together we stand and sing.